go listen to the last message. It was very interesting. And that's what I, I like to do. I like to do this with the Bible. I, I like to look at it in new ways. Uh, even if it pushes our traditional boundary, just because it makes us think about the Bible again. When's the last time you know, you know people to be talking about the Bible as much as uh, we do here? We, we, we talk about it a lot. Um, and today, I want to talk about one of my least favorite passages of Scripture. It's found in Genesis chapter 22. Taken at face value, the story is an embarrassing scene of the religion that humanity came from. As I sometimes say, these stories we grew up with, uh, we don't really experience the shock. Any, you know, some of the stories we read them and we, we jump from like familiar story to familiar story. You know, we read Genesis, and then last week we saw the importance of the chronology, of the 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 lineage of all the names. We saw how those names linked um, Noah to Seth and Adam, and how the Gospel of Luke talks about how Jesus was uh, connected um, to Noah. And so we sometimes skip those parts. Because we don't understand, or it doesn't make sense. Uh, No, it was never explained. We all know the story of Abraham, right? Who doesn't know Abraham? He's the father of three world religions. Most of the world knows who Abraham is. Uh, He's the patriarch of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. He was married to Sarah, and we know, know his problem was that he didn't have a legitimate child. Uh, And this was a problem for him at the time. Uh, The year that Abraham is said to have lived is 2100 BCE. That's not 2,000 years ago. That's 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. (laughs) Um, And for him to die without an heir back then would leave uh, him with having to pass his estate to a non-relative or maybe a cousin or somebody in his family. And uh, if you'd like to read the full story of Abraham, you'll, you can find it in chap- uh, Genesis chapter 12 and, and on. It, it, it will go maybe even a little past chapter 22. But um, as I said before, we're going to focus on chapter 22. As a refresher, God called Abram to leave his homeland in Haran and go to the land of Canaan, uh, what would eventually become Israel. In Connecticut, we know New Canaan, right? Those New England, for the, you know, the reason it's called, it's like New Israel. <laughs> so uh, he, went, he was going from his land in Haran to what would eventually become Israel. He took everything he had with him, this was a risky move in his day. He, he actually was a man who had wealth. Um, and in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham hears from God some good news. God says to him, in his old age, he's going to have a son with his wife, Sarah, and tells uh, Abraham, name him Isaac. 
So now we're caught up to where I'd like to uh, stop today. Abraham and Sarah want a legitimate heir to pass everything down to, and God had made lots of promises to Abraham along the way, from Haran to Canaan. And those promises all rested on Abraham having a son. Now they finally have a son, and then God goes and does something. So now he has a son, so they're so excited. And then God does something completely unexpected in chapter 22. Imagine getting the thing you wanted, and then there's a catch to it. (laughs) Starting in verse 1 of chapter 22 of Genesis, the story gets really dark. Very dark. I just finished watching this popular series on Netflix. If you don't like scary shows, don't watch it. It's called Squid Games. And in all honesty, this chapter of the Bible reminded me of that show. I won't go into the whole series, but it's very, very dark. And it was all about putting human beings through a series of games of life and death. The games tested their will to live, and here in Genesis 22, we have God testing Abraham with the life of his long-awaited son, Isaac. Now, I wanted us to step out of our religious upbringing for a second, because many of us grew up with these stories in the Bible, and the way they were taught to us was like a buffet. You know, on a buffet, you get to pick what you want to eat. We were only shown parts of the Bible. Like in the liturgical calendar, everything's picked out to tell us a story. And because of that, we get a nice picture of everything's perfect. But we don't land on these stories that shock us. Uh, you know, typically the, the, the scriptures we look at, they want to, you know, we want to inspire something good. Uh, You may have heard, you know, tales like this about Abraham. You know, Abraham leaving everything behind. And he had faith and courage. And you should have faith and courage, too. You may have heard about how Abraham and Sarah had to wait on the Lord. uh, And that God would deliver what you need just in time. That's a nice message. Uh, You may have heard that Abraham and Sarah, Sarah were seniors who God worked through. God can work through seniors. It doesn't matter what age you are. God can start something fresh and new. Um, But we don't often pause to think about how God tests us with scenarios, like in chapter 22, that in all honesty defy any human sensibility. Right from the beginning of the Bible, and we've been looking at this, God is testing human beings seeing if they will make a choice that pleases him. And sometimes it just seems unfair. And I asked you to step out of your religious upbringing for just a second so you can see that in a modern day, you know, we come to church so we don't question anything, right? We're just, we come to church, we love God. But a lot of churches are wondering, why don't modern people come to church anymore? You know, maybe people haven't been brought up with the Bible. Do your grandchildren, kids, do they sit and read the Bible? 
um, asking them to read the Bible for themselves is eventually going to cause them to ask some serious questions. Like, why does God do this kind of stuff? Why does he set human beings up in a nice garden and then test them with a tree that they are going to go for in the middle? Why would a loving God ask human beings to do such crazy things as we're going to find out God asks? You know, wasn't it enough for God to ask Abram, leave your home country, go to a land you don't know of? Isn't that a, that's a, that's a test. And he does it. And, and he says, I need a son. And God says, sure. But we're going to hear a story about another strange test. And I hope no one would ever have to face a test like this. It starts in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. It says this. I'll read it word for word. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, the one I just gave you, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I show you. Talk about a Bible verse you never got in a Hallmark card, right? (laughs) The story continues. So Abraham rose early. You would hope he says, no, God, that's crazy. No. (laughs) The story. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut wood for the burnt offering and set out. He's pre, this is all premeditated. He's going through with it. And he set out to the place in the distance that God had shown him. And he doesn't want to do this around Sarah. He'll, she'll kill him. <laughs> On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. He doesn't even want these guys to go with him. Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then I'll come back to you. At this point, you're hoping, like, maybe in, like, a a Law and Order show, the guys might intervene (laughs) and stop him. Like, have we ever questioned how insane this is? I want us to see the reality that Abraham is taking his son out to kill him as an act of worship. It then says Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he carried himself, uh, and he, he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and wood are here. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Now, Abraham is lying to his son. And if you read the previous chapters, he's lied before. Remember, he would tell Pharaoh that his wife was his sister, so she wouldn't take him. He's lied before. 
And he doesn't know that God will provide a lamb. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test. Abraham is simply stringing Isaac along. It then says, when they came to the place God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son. Can you, I mean, I hope there's no movie. (laughs) He bound his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Have you ever heard this story? Would you want your children to hear it? It continues. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. Now, thank God the story doesn't end here. It says that God does intervene. God intervenes on something God asked Abraham to do. The scene ends like this. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. I want us to see that this is something that people wrestle with when it comes to religion. That the books we revere have stories in them that are horrifying to the modern reader. They don't inspire faith. They instead inspire questions of psychosis. Why, if there is a God out there, would this be the test of faith? And if God never changes, if God is the same in the past, present, tomorrow, and forever, does God still do this in our modern day and age? Does God require faith like this from his followers? I would hope not. I wrestled with this passage because it disturbed me. We're not far into our series in Genesis. We're still in Genesis. Uh, There's lots of stories like this. I thought of my own children and told God in my own prayers this week, I wouldn't have done it. I would never do this. And I meditated on it. And in my thoughts, I was brought to the New Testament 2,000 years after this story of Abraham. I thought about how we as Christians have reconciled the story to say, oh, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. How God would do what he asked Abraham to do of himself, like God would do it. That God would kill his only son, whom he loved, as a sacrifice for humanity's sins. But in this story, no angel is going to intervene. That God would continue this practice of sacrificing sons to appease his anger or in an act of worship. But in Jesus' case, God needs to kill his only son, whom he loves, just so he wouldn't be mad anymore. Is this our religion? Do we take these stories to really represent this idea that God must kill and sacrifice for the purpose of testing our faith.
just so he can see if we fear him enough or cancel our debt of sin. If Christianity is in decline, and it is, I think it is because people are not buying this story anymore. I think it is an archaic relic of the past and doesn't touch on what spirituality and faith in God is all about. And so now let me tell you what I think that this story really is speaking about today. I think the Old Testament tells a narrative of how religion was, how people did connect with God back then. They lived in a time when they feared the gods. They served the gods. They saw the gods as viewing human beings as lowly servants. They, human beings, are the dust, right? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That's all we are. They established covenants with the gods back then, the people, and the covenants were strict pacts. God would say, do what I said or else. The gods of the Old Testament reflect this. Abraham may have been the one to introduce monotheism, but the relationship was still the same. God is to be feared, God is to be obeyed, and God is to be worshipped with sacrifices. In the New Testament, we see a development in the narrative. Jesus didn't write any of the stories. He's like Socrates. He didn't write his own stories down. So we know that the perspectives we get, you read the Gospels, they're, they're telling a similar story, but there are some changes. There are some differences because we're hearing their interpretation of Jesus, like Plato. So they're going to, and they're Jewish, so they're going to tell the story in light of the Old Testament. And the development is that God is not going to require sacrifice for his anger much longer. They won't need to kill animals in the temple to appease his wrath. Instead, Jesus would be the atoning sacrifice for humanity's sins. And while this sounds like a better deal, it still tells the story of a God who is angry and needs to kill something. In this case... It is his only beloved son, Jesus. But I don't think this is the end of the story. I don't think this is the full story. And in Hebrews chapter 8, we find out it isn't. In the New Testament, there's a book called Hebrews. And it's going to give, it's called Hebrews because it's written to who? The Hebrews. And it's a letter written to Hebrews to make sense of the Old Testament in light of Jesus and show us that, and they use this language literally, that the image of God that has been revealed up till that point was a shadowy vision, not a full vision. Do you remember as a kid how you viewed the world? You had a limited understanding of how the world worked you didn't have the full picture. Do you remember how you might have hated school or maybe had a crush on somebody and if they rejected you, your world was devastated, you thought you'll never find love again? 
Do you remember playing with toys and believing in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy? Do you still do those things? Do you still believe that way? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I grew up, I put the, child, the ways of my childhood behind me. You see, and I always say this, the Bible is a spiritual book. It is like the spiritual journal of humanity. In that way, it is not that God changes throughout the story. It is that our understanding of God changes throughout the story as we grow up. We can look back at these stories. We can look back, we can look at the Bible and see these old ways of understanding God and be shocked by Genesis chapter 2 and be confused. Is this how God is? But in reality, like I said, it's not God who changes in the story. It's our perspective. It's us. It is humanity that's growing out of our old ways. Remember how old I said the Abraham story is? 4,000 years ago. Then Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Do you know what the world was like back then? I wrote a, Mary Douglas is an anthropologist who uh, tries to describe what it was like to live in the, ancient, in, the, in, the, in the ancient Bible days. And she said she couldn't pay an actor any amount of money to represent what it would be like. That's how foreign that world is to us. So you can read Genesis chapter 22 and say, oh my gosh, that was how the world was back then. But should we behave that way anymore? The ancient Israelites viewed God as someone who needed sacrifice, as someone who was to be feared, jealous. What's the first commandment? I am jealous. Is that a complimentary trait, even for a human being? What about God? <laughs> That's how they viewed the other world, the world, because there was other gods. We call, it even says in the Bible, one of God's names is Elohim. Do you know what that means? God of gods. So they're saying God is just the greatest of all the gods because they did believe in, they lived in a world of many, many gods. You know, is God this jealous, angry, testing, uh, you know, divine retribu you know, ret retributioner? This was the world that the people of the Bible who wrote it, this is the world they lived in. And the ancient world 4,000 years ago was a much different place. And 2,000 years ago, while a leap forward was made with Jesus, the way the disciples understood God was too formed out of the time and place uh, that they lived. A time and place in history where people still feared God. Do you know, you see this altar? This is a remnant of the past. You would bring your animal up to the altar. You see the cross up there? The cross is the sacrifice on the altar. 
For us, we're so used to this, right? We, we're used to how churches are. But imagine your, if your grandchildren or children said, can you explain the cross to me? If it was a guillotine that killed Jesus, what would be hanging up there? If it was a gun that killed you, what would be hanging? We don't think like this because we're conditioned to just accept. We, we don't think critically of it. And I just want us to do that a little bit. Because for Christianity to last, for it to continue, the message of love needs to really be emphasized and a clearer picture of the Bible needs to be looked at. But we have to talk about these stories. You see, what Jesus does is he pours oil on the gears of his fellow Jewish uh, family and people. Jesus inspires them to think about God in new ways and pushes them, like Paul says, to grow up and mature in their faith. Jesus said to his disciples, do you know that he said this? You're going to do greater things than I did. And what I take this to mean is that as we grow as a human species, our understanding of God will change and mature, and thus our image of God will change and mature. God won't change, but how we view God will. And the Bible does speak about this. In that same book of Hebrews, chapter 8, the author tells us exactly what that will look like. And it didn't happen in the Old Testament and didn't happen because it's, it's still going on today. Because Paul said, remember last week I said, he, he went to the churches and said, you're still on the elementary teachings. You haven't grown up yet because people get stuck in the past. Listen to this. It says this in Hebrews 8. This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Who will God be? Who will he be the God to? The people who have the law written where? in their minds and in their hearts. That's who the God will be God to. Listen to this. And they will not need to teach their neighbors. They won't have to go to their neighbors. Can I tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ? <laughs> Nor will they need to teach their relatives. You won't have to, at Christmas, you won't have to, to tell them about my sermon saying, hey, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already. Has that happened yet? Not yet. So that's why I say it didn't happen in the Old Testament. It didn't happen in the times of Jesus. The day is coming. And this is what it says. And I'll forgive their wickedness, and I'll never again remember their sins. Paul finished, uh, we, we think Paul may have wrote this. It may have been someone else. It says this. When God speaks of a new covenant, listen, it means he has made 
the first one obsolete. Do you know what that means? Non-existent. It is, it is now out of date and will soon disappear. The covenant that God made with Abraham, Paul is now saying, is obsolete and out of date. Interesting. See, I want us to keep reading the Bible, but not as a book that is cast in stone like the law or bound in letters on pages. Paul writes that this book, he says this in one of his letters, is a living book. Because where is the law written, really? In us. He's saying that it's alive in us. Not necessarily on pages. That's a journal to show us where we came from. That's the value of it. Human beings have evolved. And so our understanding of God should what? Evolve too. God is not someone who asks sons to be killed or wants his son to be killed. Marcus Aurelius said, why would you really, do you want to go to a, a place where God kills the only son he loves? <laughs> that, does that sound welcoming? God is not angry. If God is perfect love, how could God be angry? Seems like a contradiction. God is not vengeful. God is not marking down our mistakes, making a list, checking it twice, just to find out who's naughty or nice. That's a fantasy. That's a, a child's thought. These are all our projections about what we think God is like. We read the Bible as a journal of humanity's spiritual progression towards the light of who God truly is. We read it to reflect on the past to see how far we have come and to inspire us to keep going. May the Father of Lights be revealed to us in even clearer ways than the Bible could have imagined. Pray and meditate on the Lord, for, as Hebrews tells us, God is not found in covenants. Where is God found? In the hearts and minds of his beloved children that he made. In whose image? God's. Sometimes we make God in our image.